Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Neha Perky, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Stanford Children's. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. And my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, Neha and I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Melissa Smith-Parrish, a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School and director of quality improvement in the cardiac intensive care unit at Boston Children's Hospital. We'll also be speaking with my colleague and friend, Dr. David Axelrod, a clinical professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Cardiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine and an attending physician in the cardiovascular intensive care unit at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Dax has personally been a mentor for me as a fellow and junior faculty, so I'm excited to have him and Melissa here to speak with us about avoiding junior faculty pitfalls. Thank you so much, Dax and Melissa, for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Of course, thanks. For those of our listeners who did not get a chance to join us at the PCICS meeting, can you summarize the main themes of your talk? We spoke afterwards after a couple of, um, you know, really prominent members in the Pixis community spoke about, you know, things they wish that they had known, you know, 20 years ago or when they were just starting out. And I think there were really some insights that were really important. And I, I think things that we hadn't necessarily heard people say either out loud or in a big conference setting at Pixis or really anywhere in medicine, at least for what I had seen, really talking about, you know, how are people not only weathering short-term this pandemic, but also the long-term kind of being a person that works in the CBICU, whether that's an attending or a fellow or a nurse, RT, you know, all of the people that work in this super intense environment. How do we make that sustainable? How do we make that something that allows for people, you know, personal growth, but also allows you know, people to work really hard, to have a family, to take care of themselves. Melissa and I put together, each one of us, about four to five recommendations or things that we kind of wish that we had done or thought were important for junior faculty and fellows. Thanks. That's great. Melissa, you started your talk by saying you can have it all, but not all the time. What does that phrase mean to you? So for me, that was really focusing on balancing family with my work life. And I am married to a wonderful man for 14 years and have two wonderful children. And it's finding that balance with finding time for them, but also having my robust work life. I love what I do. I love being a cardiac intensivist. And sometimes that means sacrificing time with one or the other. And so for me, It's when I'm at work, when I'm on service, when I'm on call, I am 100% dedicated to my work. But when I am not present at work, it's finding that same protected time for my family. Yeah, that's great. Thank you both for sharing these themes and really creating the space where it's okay to talk about, you know, I echo your sentiments, Dex, that there was really kind of a spirit of candor and honesty and transparency that everybody had, which I think is really refreshing and really empowering. And I feel really lucky to have all of you guys as role models to invigorate the discussion. What do you think is the most important themes that came across of all the tips that you shared? Um, If there was just one takeaway that you could share with somebody? Well, I can tell you the one that for me was most helpful and kind of meant meant the most both as an audience member, specifically watching Gil talk and then kind of sharing my thoughts on it, which was that for me to see Gil Wernofsky, who, you know, I've watched put up slides now for, it must be 20 years to the point where he's such an amazing speaker and teacher that like he's got his own font. So if somebody puts up slides and you see the font, you're like, I know Gil's talking and this is going to be so good. So to see Gil say that, you know, he felt it so helpful to get a therapist. It doesn't matter what you call it. If you want to call it a coach, that's fine. It doesn't matter. 
And he said, you know, I have two. And so I'm sitting there and one of my slides says like, you know, you can't do this on your own. It's, it's not fair to dump this stuff on your significant other. So get, you know, get a therapist. Um, and I watch Gills and now I'm going, wait a minute, maybe I need to get another one. He's got two. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I do tell that, you know, carefully to as many junior faculty or interviewees that will listen, because I think it's really important, um, you know, having come home after a long night when you lose a kid at 2 a.m., that's just not something that is like normal out there in, in society. And it's really hard to, to expect, you know, friends over a beer or a spouse, or, you know, like I said in the talk, like a, you know, a pet or a family member to deal with that. It's just, that's a lot. So I would say that would be my number one thing. Melissa, do you have a number one thing you want to share with us? Yeah, I think for me, time is a valuable resource and time flies by very quickly. I can't believe I've been attending for five years already. So thinking back to that five-year plan, I've already used up those five years. And the journey has been different than what I wrote out five years ago with Brad Marino at Lurie Children's Hospital. And I'm grateful for that. It's an exciting journey. But it's, it is a limited resource. And so we have to treasure that and treat it very carefully. And so I think that spills into how we balance work with family, what we use as our academic priorities, and what we say yes to. And I think a very important lesson that I've learned is that it is okay to say no. And so it was really good to hear other people with that message of empowering junior faculty members to say no, so that your yes can be a strong yes, and your commitments can be strong. That's a super important point. If I can just comment on that too, I think learning how to say no is really important and not only to say no, but kind of how to say it so that you can, you know, just let people know that are giving you opportunities. You know, I really appreciate you, you know, thinking of me to do that. Um, that's just something right now that with other priorities I have that I, it's, I'm not going to be able to give it the attention that it deserves or something like that is how I've learned to say like, there's no way in heck I'm going to write that chapter, man. I just can't do it. So I think that was really interesting. And then I was thinking this as well when you were speaking about time, Melissa, because it's such an important concept. And also watching one of the other speakers at one of the other sessions named Donna Ballard speak about the time construct. And I've come to realize now, you know, after a number of years and like trying to pay off loans and, you know, pay for kids and stuff like that, that there is eventually, you know, going to be other times to make, you know, if you need additional money to make additional money, but you do not get time back. Time is at least if we're going to agree that we're in this linear construct, it goes in one direction and, um, and you don't get that back. And that, you know, to hear like multiple leaders in our field today who like built the foundation of what we, we all work in and love say that, um, that I worked too hard when I was, um, you know, a junior person, that was really powerful. So I have a follow-up question to that. I think as junior faculty, there are still mentors out there that will tell you, you know, when you first start out, say yes to everything. So how do you balance that desire to be a good team player, but also protect your time for your academic pursuits or for your time with your family or whatever it is that's important to you? How do you make those choices? I think this is where the idea of legacy comes in and what you personally are passionate about. And I think taking the time to think about your answer of, am I going to say yes to this commitment? Am I going to say no to this commitment rather than giving a reflexive yes? And then asking yourself, how does this particular commitment fit into what defines me? What makes me happy? What do I want to look back upon and say, yes, I'm proud of that. Yes, I contributed to that. And if whatever you're being asked to do doesn't fit into that, even a certain percentage, then I think it's okay to say no. Yeah, I think it's also okay to have multiple mentors or advisors that 
you can kind of bounce off so that you have a whole unified picture rather than kind of one person's take on, you know, this is how I did it. And this is how I see you moving forward. You will always have more opportunities. And if the project is that good, you know, it'll, it'll be there in six months that you'll be able to collaborate in some way. So I've more often made the other error, which is signing up for things that then I'm, you know, cramming the night before to finish a, a chapter or something like that, which is just not really that fun. That's a really good point. Your your no today might be a yes in the future, and it can be a strong yes. But at the moment, you might just not have the bandwidth for that. That's a great point. Well, so how would you recommend people who are coming out of um, training and they're trying to ask themselves their five-year plan, their legacy plan, and they just feel so overwhelmed by the question. They feel maybe lost. They don't have like a passion, quote unquote. Maybe they're still exploring their interest and they feel a bit directionless. Well, there has to be something that made you come into this field, right? Like you have somehow chosen to do cardiology fellowship, plus probably a senior fellowship, maybe a second fellowship. So there's something that has led you into the crazy chaos of cardiac critical care. And so I would encourage you to take the time to explore that why. And it might be some sort of amazing clinical experience that you had. And that's a great start. Maybe it's spending six months becoming a really good clinician before you define what your academic interest is. Um, And then just being open-minded to what's happening around you. And at some point, I'm guessing that there will be a question that piques your interest. And I would encourage you to explore it at that time. I completely agree. I think... um... I mean, if you step back and look at all of the you know people working in in the units that we collaborate with, it's a dedicated, talented group of individuals with with really diverse interests. And so, I think it's okay if you don't feel like right now, say three years in as a faculty person, you don't know what you you want to pursue. You know, at year seventeen through twenty, and it's okay to like take a break, go. Uh, you know, investigate some of your interests, read books that are not related to medicine, see how things might integrate into your work. And there are so many avenues that weren't even ideas when like I started as a faculty and certainly when Gil, I mean, Gil started before the internet. Come on, right? So, so in, you know, here you are running a podcast. So there, you know, there's not that many podcasts out there. So, you know, if this is your passion, then, I mean, I think it'd be amazing to go interview like Aldo Castaneda and the the first line of surgeons on a podcast and put that together. That would be incredible. And that's a, you know, so like little ideas just to pick one. I mean, I think it doesn't have to be the standard randomized control trial clinical researcher, you know, that's um, those are great, but there's, there's so many other opportunities. So I think it's just about keeping your mind open and you're, and kind of just staying aware. I've been asked a number of times by fellows about sort of unique interests that they have that maybe don't fit into the traditional model of clinical research and then doing clinical time in the wards. How do you counsel those fellows about how to find appropriate mentors or maybe even how to hold their ground when the administration may not support that idea as well? Yeah, that's a a really good question, uh, which is kind of like the other side of the coin of what we were just talking about. And I sometimes think about this, you know, yeah, well, sure, it's really easy for somebody who's now already established and is like kind of gone up the chain and who's like, you know, doesn't have that much to lose anymore. And like that, I'm talking about myself, right? Like it's for me to say like, oh, just keep an open mind and, and you know, it'll be great. It'll work out for you. It's easy to say when you've kind of gone through, you know, a number of years. 
so the other side of the coin is that like, yes, there is also a system, you know, for example, like to, to complete a fellowship, you have to have a, a research project. It doesn't have to be a publication, but there has to be some kind of scholarly output. And I mean, you can label that whatever you want, like playing the game or at least like contributing, you know, to the part that's kind of the quote unquote standard, you know, I guess, research or scholarly products. And I guess I would just encourage people to like, you do have to do those projects, even if some percentage of it, 20% of it or whatever is just checking the box to finish fellowship, but really to try and find, you know, something out of that project that you can carry on or extrapolate to other work. So, you know, it may not be the, the work that you're going to do for your life, but maybe you'll learn some research design methods that are really important, or you'll learn, you know, some technical skills that will carry over to other projects. So I think um, for the people that are just starting out, I don't think it's realistic to think that you're going to like start out and completely think outside the box before you have like worked a little bit inside the box. And so maybe to, you know, just realize like some of it has to be kind of the standard stuff to kind of get you started, but that doesn't mean you can't continue the interest of, you know, your crazy idea that's outside the box and then somehow try and connect like almost every project you work on to fit some little piece into what you're doing in the future. And they may not all, and then, you know, you're going to have a bunch that are going to fail. Like nobody publishes the research projects that don't make it, but I've got a bunch of them Um, and I'm not giving them to anybody else because I don't think anyone else is going to do that well with them either. So, you know, I think everybody has those. Everyone does. I think that's a fair point. This sometimes comes up with quality improvement work where fellows need that manuscript, that academic production. And my institution doesn't necessarily look at quality improvement as like robust, randomized control trial level of academic experience. But I think extracting what you can from it, and sometimes you're right, sometimes you do have to operate within that box finding that question, writing it up in a way that people will give you the academic credit that the institution feels like you need to have. And I'd also encourage people to think about mentorship outside the box, though. Like sometimes the best mentor for you isn't in the Department of Cardiology. And so some of my best relationships have happened with people that don't do what I do, even if it's like one of my best mentors was a critical care physician, for example. Um, The chief quality officer, he was an infectious disease specialist has been a great mentor. And so encouraging people to develop those relationships outside the department. But I agree that to a certain degree, especially in the beginning, sometimes you do have to hone your project towards the academic expectation. The hope that as you get more experience, you get more flexibility and freedom to think outside the box. Yeah, Melissa, that's a great point about mentorship and really um, capitalizing on other fields. I think there's so much richness that can come from kind of cross-pollination. I find mentorship an interesting topic because we each have somebody that we look up to and that we want to emulate. And it's not always easy to get those relationships and clearly forced relationships don't work. So what are your recommendations? Maybe a trainee has come to a new institution or they're transitioning how they're being viewed from a trainee to a faculty at their old institution. How can we find meaningful feedback or relationships without kind of forcing it? I would encourage people just to be brave enough to have the conversation. Um, I remember being a cardiology fellow and exploring the idea of doing dual boarding and being a critical care fellow. And at the time, Gail Onik was this like formidable person from the PICU that I was mildly terrified of as a cardiology fellow. 
But I had coffee with her in her office and we developed a relationship that I still treasure to this day. And the same was comparable with my relationship with like Leah Harris in critical care and with Nancy Ganiam as we did our quality improvement uh, master's degree together. It's, it's not being afraid of these people and their titles and just asking them for their time, which is a, a big gift from them, um, but has really paid off. And I agree with you about the force mentorship thing. I think Programs do a nice try at assigning mentors, but sometimes you might not have that personal connection that I think of true mentorship needs of like really knowing that person and taking the time and developing that relationship. And, and like for me, it's, it's being that raw, vulnerable version of myself. Like that's what I appreciated the most from the Leah Harris experience in Chicago when I was a brand new attending. Like it was her office where I found myself asking like, what, what am I doing wrong? What should I be doing better? How do I focus in on what I need to focus on? And that was never an assigned relationship, but it was also that person who holds you accountable to your best version of yourself. Like she wasn't going to let me give up and just say that I've tried and it wasn't good enough. Like she found a way for me to become the best version of myself. And I think that's what a true mentor really does. Yeah. I would just add that I completely agree with what Melissa said and that, you know, I have the same exact same experience of these people that are quote unquote giants in our field and being in, you know, listening to them speak. And I mean, I just never would have thought that I w- I'd be, you know, like text messaging with, <laughs> with Gil Wernowski, um about things that, you know, questions I have. And I just think that that really came out today, you know, seeing people's kind of vulnerability and really being honest. We're a relatively small community of people that are actually very amenable to helping each other, you know, especially we all remember being at all of these stages, trainee, junior, mid-level, they all have individual challenges. And I think now, especially that like everybody's figured out Zoom, we all know how to do these teleconferencing. Like, so you, you really can look outside of pediatric cardiology at your institution. You can look outside of your institution. You can look outside of medicine and, you know, you can find people that, that really will kind of help you along the way. Thank you both. That's so insightful as a way of thinking about how one goes about finding mentors. I think we're very, it's very easy to get stuck in the box of these are, you know, these are the mentors that have been assigned to me, or I fit into this research box or this QI box or this education box. Therefore, these people should be my mentors instead of maybe thinking a little bit broader than that. I do want to spend a few minutes of our time together sort of talking about some of the nuts and bolts of the transition from being a fellow to being a junior faculty member. So I wanted to ask both of you what you think the hardest part of that transition is from trainee to junior faculty. I was surprised at the burden of responsibility I felt in those first few months. And I had done two fellowships. So I was a very confident senior fellow. I thought I knew a lot of things that I suddenly did not know July 1st of my first year of being an attending. And I will say that with each year of being an attending, this whole like idea of black and white and what is right and what is wrong becomes progressively more gray for me. But I was really humbled in that first year of how much you feel the burden of your decision making when no one else is looking over your shoulder, when you're signing that progress note, when you're deciding that this kid is going on to ECMO tonight, when you're asking the surgeon, yeah, I think we actually need to go back to the operating room. I'd had those conversations before, but I always had felt that like the gift of the attending who had the final say. And when you are the attending, there's something very humbling about that. I think I have, a, you know, definitely completely agree. Uh, I felt that for sure and still feel that it's getting grayer and grayer over time. 
I also, I don't think I necessarily appreciated, and you'll hear people say this, you know, when they're talking about team dynamics and, and how interactions are in the ICU. I don't think I necessarily appreciated that just by nature of our role, that we really are leaders and like people will look at your behavior and, or your body language, or, you know, your huffing at the end of a very long 20 minute presentation that could have been 10 and that, and that will set tone. And I'm not saying that, that I'm, that I do this, you know, super well, or that I figured it out. I'm just saying, I didn't necessarily realize what an impact that can have. And it really can. And so I try, try to remember that, that we really are seen as leaders and, and role models. The other one little thing that I did is that for people that take a first job at the institution that they train at, I made a like concerted effort that first two years that like when I was on service, I wore a tie, which was like very different than what I had done as a fellow to make that like clear distinction. Like I am the same person now in a very different role. And so, you know, that was one thing. And then the other part is that obviously that, that may not apply to everyone, but um, is trying to like notice and stick up for especially junior faculty that may either not be getting treated like junior faculty or may be getting, you know, a little bit of extra like bullying from a parent or something like that once you're in the leadership role and certainly as you get to be more senior, like it kind of is your job to not let that stuff get overlooked. Um, I think as a, as a white guy in medicine, like I've got all kinds of responsibilities that I feel like I'm trying to look out for. Right. I have been, you know, on call with very accomplished and skilled female physicians that keep getting asked if they're nurses. And I do feel like it's in part my responsibility to say, you know, no doctor so-and-so was the doctor who performed the cardiac catheterization on your baby the other day. And, you know, in, in a way that is at least not totally awkward, but I think those kind of leadership opportunities, I think are important, at least something that I'm trying to work on. I think you're totally right. It's like this dynamic push-pull where, yes, you are in an immediate position of leadership, especially like with the APPs, the fellows, the nurses, but at the same time, whether better or worse, there is like a hierarchy of leadership for sure. And, you know, especially in your first couple of years out, trying to establish that you're competent, trying to inspire confidence of your teammates, but really also of your colleagues and of the more senior colleagues, your surgical colleagues. What are your tips on how to build trust I think for me, it's been about relationship building. And so I did my first two years of attendingship in Chicago, and then I started all over again at Boston. I would say it takes time. So like, that's one thing as well. I would say it took about 18 months at Boston for me to be considered a respected, valued colleague, especially as the person who didn't train here at all. Like I was coming in as the total outsider. But I think the um, the one session that talks about being present in the unit, I think Dr. Tweddle mentioned that in his session. I think that's a valuable lesson in how to develop relationships. If you're present at the bedside, if you're engaged, if you show through your words and your questions that you know what you're doing and that you care about the patient and that you value that particular person's insight, I think that's one valuable way of relationship building. I think that can also go along with establishing relationships with pretty much anyone. Um, but I do think about like the nursing relationship, especially coming in as a woman, especially coming in as a person who didn't maybe train at that particular place and just really valuing that other person's insight while also like owning the decision in the end. I think sometimes as attendings, like at the end of the day, you have to make the decision. You have to own that decision. You have to be responsible for that decision, but at least taking the time to 
ask for that particular person's opinion or insight and, and validating it, even if your decision might be different from what they're suggesting. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the you know, the relationship, all of the team members, especially when you're working in a system, some of which kind of has to be hierarchical just by nature of if you're in a code, somebody has to be taking charge. But also, you know, with surgeons and with teams, it can be, you know, really hard, especially in such a stressful environment. You know, I spent the first few years when I first started out, almost like any time that I was kind of contacting one of our surgeons about like a, a major, you know, issue or problem that I had time to stop and think about, you know, I would just go to one of the other attendings that had a little bit more experience than me or that, you know, had worked as an attending with this surgeon longer and say like, hey, you know, this is what I'm about to say and send as a text message or, you know, a voicemail. What do you think? And, and can you think of any additional information they would want to know? Or, or is there something that is going to get me into trouble here just by nature of what I'm asking for? And so that, that I have found was helpful too. We've spent a lot of time talking about how to build the perfect relationship, like how to start from the beginning and deliberately create a good relationship with your trainees, with your nurses, with your surgeons. Say maybe you started off on the wrong foot or gave someone the wrong impression. Are there ways to correct that? Yes, there are. So there's a few things about that I think is really important. So the first thing is that I think that there's a tendency in medicine, at least in a lot of the kind of training that I've seen that first impressions often hold too much weight, such that somebody who's just starting out as a first or second year fellow, then their first couple of shifts in the CVICU. And I mean, you have no idea what's going on in their life or at their home. You know, they could I mean, I remember having kids that were up in the middle of the night and feeling like I was barely alive or awake during some of those uh, call nights. Someone who gets kind of, quote unquote, pegged as either, you know, not a team player or snappy or, you know, made a comment that was, you know, offended somebody that can carry a lot of weight going forward. And that can be a really hard hole to dig out of. So I think that, you know, you have to be aware of that, that like communication issues are really important. It doesn't matter what your intent was. It matters what the impact was for people. But I do think, um, and I've had the experience of having like temper explosions the first few years as a faculty member for things that like I still today think were actually, they were right. Um, but it doesn't matter because it's, you know, the way that if you explode that way, that kind of behavior is, is just not something that is going to put you on the path that you want to be on. There are things that you can do. And, you know, I, and I've done some of these and, you know, actually I felt relatively supported through a lot of that by my institution when they said like, hey, you know, we're going to have you like meet with a coach who's going to help you with communication issues and kind of help you think through like, why is the stress of the unit an issue for our junior faculty and particularly for you? And I did that. And grudgingly, at first, I was not really that happy about it, kind of dragged my feet to it, but actually felt like at the end of the day, that's like free coaching that they were kind of trying to help me to figure out some work issues. So I do think that you can do it. You have to have some people that can help you see see yourself or see your roles in the unit in a way that maybe you don't have that insight. And then you got to take it seriously and you have to like both do some behavior change and then also like try to document it in some way. So I kind of uh, enlisted a few of our APPs and said like, hey, listen, like I'm on a half self-imposed behavior management plan here and like half imposed by like the people that hire me. And I don't, you know, I want to be successful. I don't want to lose my job here. I want to do well. So can you please watch me on service for the next six months 
and send me emails when you see that I'm either like clearly frustrated and dealing with it well, or like clearly frustrated and not. Um, and over the course of time, like at least I got to the point where like people could like Jana, the NP could say like, yeah, I could tell you were pretty frustrated. And I saw how you just kind of like counted and walked away and people thought that was a little bit rude, but at least you didn't blow up. <laughs> so you can change that kind of behavior. But by the way, I happen to think that it also can be true that while like frustration or, or you know, losing tempers is, it seems relatively common, like in our field, I actually think like there's an equal challenge with the kind of like non-engaging, you know, aversion to conflict, you know, just like walking away and not, not addressing things at all, I think can be equally bad. It's just a passive form of that. So it's a little bit harder to see. So, yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is you can address those issues. Um, I think it's always helpful to have you know, a number of people that, that are invested in you to, to help you do that, because you're going to have to document it and kind of like, show that you really care about it. Those are excellent points. I would also say that it's okay to say you're sorry. Like even it's really actually amazingly humble if an attending especially goes to a fellow or to someone else and says, the way I treated that particular situation was wrong. And I apologize. Um, I also would encourage the conversation directly to happen, though, like to to say you're sorry and to acknowledge what happened and to have the conversation directly with that person rather than assume that it will get better with time or that leadership will handle it or that what happened happened and we're not even going to acknowledge it. I think acknowledging something is incredibly important and then being brave enough to have that vulnerable, transparent conversation. Thank you both so much for your candor and your sort of honest answer. I think in particular, those are, those are tough questions, right? About saying that we're, that we were wrong maybe, and that acknowledging that our actions have repercussions. I think we all have sort of the attitude of saying, I, you know, well, I'm just trying to take care of these patients and all this other stuff is noise, but that noise I think really matters. And in the end, I think contributes to our wellness and our ability to do our jobs well and to care. We are unfortunately out of time and we really appreciate you both spending the afternoon with us to elaborate more on the wonderful talks you gave. So thank you again for speaking with us. We really enjoyed having you here. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. If you're a trainee or an early career pediatric cardiac intensivist and you enjoyed this episode, please consider joining the PCICS Early Career Special Interest Group, which is just forming now. You'll have access to mentorship, in-depth discussions on topics just like the ones discussed on this podcast, and you'll learn how to become more involved in the society. This was episode 48 of the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. This episode was entitled Junior Faculty Pearls and Pitfalls and was hosted by Neha Perky and Sadie Rodriguez. The guests were David Axelrod and Melissa Smith-Parrish. This episode was edited by Neha Perky. The executive producers of the PCICS podcast are David Warho, Sadie Rodriguez, and Deanna Zanatos. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.